0: Okay, I know it was a long time ago when we talked about this, but I want to mention Rogan again, <laughs> okay? <laughs> if you're like me, uh, you know, 10 minutes go by and, oops, what was, what was he saying? What was that topic? And the reason I just want to mention this again and put this slide back up here is that this is really valuable. And most gardeners and even many commercial growers are very very reluctant to do this and I'm just saying I don't want you to be callous but to everything there is a season and you know I, I get a little bit frustrated too sometimes when I see a crop that I've tended to and lovingly cared for and you know plucked the bounty from and then basically have to terminate it before its natural life is over that's 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 I can see how that can be a little bit troubling but it's it's essential it's really important for a practical approach to 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 protecting your garden and again it's not just for your crop cycles but it grossly diminishes uh, you know uh, disease and pest problems too so that's, you know, that's the satisfaction that you have when you take those crops out, what might appear to be prematurely to you, is that you're actually securing the environment for, for the long term. <coughs> uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, just a photograph. I use this as an example uh, by block planting again when those beans have peaked out in their production. I'm going to plow them into the ground and uh, plant another crop right behind it and that will have far more value than whatever few residual beans I would have had coming from that. And here too, those are my smaller high tunnels that you see behind them and this is a good photograph too to demonstrate the, uh, well actually let's go to the next one, demonstrate the uh, ventilation that I use instead of using roll-up sides I just take the upper panels off the end and take the doors off and that stays ventilated uh, very well through the through the summer growing season. I do get some heat gain in there, uh, eight, uh, seven to eight degrees. Uh, I had some contention about that at one time. In fact, I suggested um, in, in, in West Virginia for the past eight or nine years there has been a, a, a strong um, investment by the Department of Agriculture and by the University Extension Service to encourage small-scale growers. We're uh, living in a part of the country that's considered a food desert. Uh, We have very little production in West Virginia and you know a few years ago uh, it was recognized that since everything that comes in in the way of foodstuffs to West Virginia and other parts of the country too for that matter, is brought in by trucks. Uh, If something happens to the oil supply, guess what folks? We all starve. So it's not a matter of of just whether food is available or not. It's the transportation system that's involved in getting it to us also that needs to be considered. And They have made some big investments in small-scale agriculture as a consequence of that. That is where the funding for the USDA or the NRCS high tunnel program came from. Uh, there has been uh, a, a large farm to school um, uh, movement that's been in place for the last few years to help encourage school systems to buy locally produced foods. And uh, as a consequence of, of some of this activity on the part of the, of the government agencies, uh, there's a, a, a gentleman at West Virginia University Extension Service, Dr. Lewis Jett who has worked specifically to help small growers uh, discover better ways to use high tunnels, to use season extension. And a lot of that work has been dedicated to finding varieties that work well in a high tunnel and what's well adapted to West Virginia and that type of thing. And (coughs) he and I have have, uh, gotten to know each other pretty well and he was asking me about what I thought of the high tunnel program and I told him "Well, I think it's a great program but I think the specs on the high tunnel need some revision because they were advocating long high tunnels with roll up sides and I said you know I think I I think it'd be a better idea to advocate a shorter tunnel with open end walls in in terms of of ventilating so in order to satisfy his curiosity uh, one year I took one of my high tunnels, and I rolled up the side on it, closed the end walls, rolled up the side, and we hung a recording thermometer in there that recorded the temperature for a a 30-day period of time. And the high tunnel that was right beside it, which was this one, uh, I I left just as it is, and we hung a recording thermometer in there for a 30-day period of time. And uh, it was a good exercise because it proved to me what I had thought, and that is that uh, the open end walls on about a 50-foot structure is totally adequate and cools just as well as the roll-up sides do. We had a half-degree variation on about three days, uh, various over the course of time, not three days in a row, but there were three days during that 30-day period of time when the high tunnel without the roll-up sides was actually a half degree cooler than the high tunnel that had the roll-up sides. So anyway that's, that's part of the reason for the size of this high tunnel and really for home gardeners uh, you don't need anything bigger than that anyway because you're going to grow an enormous amount of food in a high tunnel. It's, a, it's an enormous amount of food that comes out of there. Um, this particular tunnel has lettuce planted in the center row here that lettuce is planted on a one one plant per square foot area. Uh, someone had mentioned square foot planting before, and you know this is kind of an adaptation to uh, to it. But uh, the spring lettuce works very well on a one uh, per square foot basis. And this high tunnel is about 700 square feet. You subtract the walkways, I get five or six hundred heads of lettuce in that high tunnel, and I can do that five times a year. Uh, that's a lot of productivity. A lot of productivity. So, you know, that's I, 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 in, in terms of generating income for me, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's between four and six thousand dollars a year in, in one high tunnel that cost me eight hundred dollars initially to build. So, that's the way the economics works there. <clears throat> Uh, The block planting is evidenced here too. You can see at the end of that bed I have some red romaine lettuce. I don't have a lot of demand for that but I plant it in a block rather than in rows so that when it comes time to harvest it I can harvest that block and replant it and then when the romaine is harvested a little bit later I harvest that and then can replant that too. Uh, The right bed here is kale. Uh, The left bed is a different variety of kale. And uh, again, by using the block planting method, we can put a lot of plants in a small space and, and do pretty well with generating income. Now, I'm a market farm, and one of the things that is necessary for home gardeners is what to do with the produce that you've got that's a little overabundant. We'll go back to our broccoli crop, and, you know, if you've... Uh, planted more than what you can use immediately. If you're not going to can it, a lot of these crops will store very well even in the refrigerator for a good period of time. And this afternoon we're going to talk about some of the methods of preparing the crop as well as what to do with the crop for longer-term storage. Uh, The title of the program this afternoon is Bagging the Bounty, and basically it's how to make most efficient use out of what you harvest. Some of that starts before you even harvest the crop. Uh, Even if you're thinking of canning or freezing uh, products, we're going to discuss some uh, of the aspects of what's necessary. Uh, from a grower's perspective, uh, not just the kitchen perspective, about what to do with their crops, but one thing you can do is use cold storage, and it doesn't take a lot of this. So if you're a home gardener, and it doesn't take a lot of space in cold storage, is what I should say. Uh, this is all of the cold storage that I have on my farm right here. These two commercial refrigerators on the left-hand side of the picture here. Uh, those, uh, those are four feet wide two feet deep and six feet tall Uh, that's not a lot of that's not a lot of space that's the equivalent to maybe five large household refrigerators maybe six at the most and I by cycling my crops through these this is all the cold storage I need for all of the produce that comes off my farm and so you don't need a big walk-in cold room if you're a small home-scale grower uh, you might disagree with me if you're growing cut flowers, uh, you know, in large quantity, but you don't need a lot of extra space. But it is really helpful for a home gardener that is, um, you know, producing a good portion of the food for yourself to have an extra refrigerator, even if you don't use it all the time. So if you can find a used large refrigerator, you can put it in the garage or an outbuilding or someplace where you're not going to use it all the time just to handle some of the overflow of your crop production it can pay for itself real quickly too and it's uh, very much a a good idea to have that. Um, We can store cauliflower and broccoli and cabbage and things like that for anywhere from four to six weeks in just a refrigerator. So, you know, when you consider, uh, that sounds kind of extraordinary, but when you consider that the cabbage and the cauliflower that you're buying here today in the grocery store is already four to six weeks old, because it made the trip all the way here from California, uh, it's, it, it, it's not that, that extreme, but if you're growing your props, crops properly and you harvest them properly and handle them properly, all of which we're going to talk about this afternoon, then some additional cold storage space for you can be really valuable and make, you know, make more efficient use of your crop too. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about some of the tools and texni- techniques that I use and this is really where the rubber re- meets the road here about having two hands taking care of two acres. Believe me, I don't like wasting steps and I don't like wasting time. Uh, You know, I absolutely love farming, but at my core, I'm lazy, and I don't want to do any more than I have to, and I want to get the best return I can for every movement that I make on my farm, and you know, two acres isn't a huge area, but from one end of my production area to the other end of my production area, it's about a half a mile. Maybe, no, I'm sorry, a little less than that, maybe about, it's, it's more than a quarter of a mile, less than a half a mile. So if I get out to that far end and I realize, oops, I left my tool or I left something back at the other end, I'm walking a half a mile or more uh, and wasting time just to go retrieve something. So we want to, to, to think about ways that we can make a minimum of movement and save your steps. If I'm walking from one end of the farm and I know that, you know, an hour later I'm going to need something at that end of, of the farm, even though I may be coming back, I'm, I've got to keep these things kind of in inventory in my mind so that I'm taking what I need, where I need it, before I need it, okay? Yeah, take it before I need it. And that basically is, is uh, in, involves just staging tools and equipment and hoses and things where they're redi- readily available when I need them. And even if I'm going out to cultivate and I'm taking my hoe with me, if I know that later that day I'm going to be uh, planting some plants out in that area and I'm going to need a hose to, to, to water the plants in, take the hose too. You know, be, be sensible and try to try to limit your steps. Each of us is going to have a different capacity to do this and a different way of going about this, but it's really important to uh, be efficient in what you do and look at the big picture for what you're trying to accomplish that day, not just the immediate task that's in front of you. Whenever I'm walking through the fields, if I do have a weed issue and I've got a large weed that's popping up in a bed, I don't just look at it, walk on, and say, I'm going to get that later when I do weeding. You know, it's not weeding period. Uh, that doesn't work that way. It, you know, if I'm walking by it, it gets ripped out on my way to go do something else. And constantly keep the big picture in mind of what you're doing out in the garden so that you don't put yourself in little boxes of specialized tasks okay that's just sensible just common sense remember too that when it comes to water hoses only firemen coil their hoses farmers do not coil hoses <laughs> I have seen this over and over and over again and it drives me absolutely berserk because people coil their hoses and then when they're uncoiling the hoses, they get tangled and they're all bent and distorted and A, it's not good for the hose, and B, it's not good for efficiency. So when I finish with my hose, for example, let me go back here picture, if, I, if I'm watering this greenhouse by hand, if, if you know I have drip tape and other things too, but instead of pulling the hose out of the greenhouse, if I'm going to use it again, I just leave it stretched out in the row and when I want to use it again, I grab it, I walk out the door I walk 50 feet into the garden with it so the hose is all nice and straight and then I turn it on and I walk back into the greenhouse and, and water with it. So you know everything is linear when it comes to the water tubing. The drip tape is linear, the hoses are linear, everything is long and stretched out. That way you don't end up with the, the fight with the coils and yeah you also save a lot of steps that way. <clears throat> so always think about uh, you know this always think about the step ahead and you know, just find different ways to make things work for you. I have, like I said, my my farm is kind of spread out. Uh, and if I'm going to be needing a set of tools at one end of the farm and the next day a set of tools at the other end of the farm It might be worthwhile to get two sets of tools so I can leave one at one area and one in the other area so I'm not, uh, you know, chasing things back and forth all the time and uh, having good ways to, uh, to store those and protect them is important too, but uh, always think in terms of what's going to save you steps Steps are useless in terms of productivity. I don't make any money. I don't get anything accomplished if I'm walking from one place to another place. It's all the stuff I do in between that is valuable in production. So you want to try to minimize that. The next thing I'm going to do is uh, just go over a brief list of my favorite tools. The tools that I use that are my favorites. Now I'm not saying that what is good for me is good for you one of the things that I've discovered as I've gotten older is I don't move the way I used to move I can't do what I used to do and my body doesn't like certain things now that it used to just be fine with so I you know ergonomics is is basically finding ways that you can be comfortable doing repetitive tasks, and the tools that I use are based on what works for me. And uh, I want to point this out because we're so materialistically consumer driven these days that we're often influenced more by the advertising well Fred says or the ad says that this is the easiest way to do this so if this is the easiest way to do this and I feel this bad I don't think I can do this anymore you know rather than looking for another tool or another way of going about it so there's a lot of different stuff out there for sale these days I'm just going to show you uh, some simple things that I use and again Um, Simplicity is kind of where I'm coming from in terms of how I go about doing things. I want all of you to be able to do what I do, if you choose to. And if that's going to be the case, then I don't want you to have to go out and buy a tractor tomorrow. I don't want you to have to go out and invest, you know, $20,000 in and tools and equipment and, and, and high tunnels and stuff before you can even start. I want you to be able to start out with simple things that work well. And uh, that's part of, of the choices that I've made here too is based on that. I have two rototillers. And a lot of guys that, 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 you know, especially when couples come to our training program in West Virginia, the first question that I usually get from the guys is, do I need a tractor?" <laughs> and, well, how much are you going to farm? Oh, we got about a quarter of an acre, but, you know, I, I, you know we want to buy the tractor. I actually had one guy that did do that. He left the class and bought a tractor. And I don't think he's gardening anymore, but he still has the tractor payments. Um, the, the, the thing is to, is to consider what's appropriate for your scale. And realistically, uh, there are some power tillers out there that are very effective for um, gardening operations that will be totally adequate for what you want to do as a home gardener. When you start commercial gardening at the scale that I'm at, at one and a half to two acres or so, then maybe a tractor would be worth your while. Uh, And only for some operations really. And there are some really good power tillers out there on the market today. Uh, the BCS tiller is one of them uh, that um, a friend of mine uses who has a garden about the same size that I do and he's also he's my best buddy at the farmers market um, and he farms a little less than I do but he's 70 years old and he does it all with a tiller so a tractors not necessarily uh, necessary but, but tillers are good and I use two types of tillers I have a front time tiller and a rear tine tiller and I regret I didn't bring pictures of them with me here Uh, but I think most of us are familiar with what a front tine tiller is that means the tines are in front of the engine and it cuts into the soil before the machine actually passes over it that's very good for initially breaking up soil and it does a much better job of tilling than a rear tine tiller does for that purpose and I use the, uh, the, the front tine tiller uh, when I'm breaking new ground, or when I'm breaking up ground that hasn't been tilled in quite some time, just to get it loosened up and to break it up, uh, the tiller that I have is a, a, a 1980 model Craftsman front-tine tiller, five horsepower, nothing fancy. And uh, you know, by God's grace, I've been able to maintain it and keep it going all these years, but it's it's getting pretty worn out. But you don't need to go out and spend a lot of money on this stuff if you look at yard sales and things, too. Um, I have replaced the tines on it a couple of times. But that tiller uh, will loosen the soil to about nine inches deep, which is pretty good for a uh, for, for a hand rotor tiller. I have a rear tine tiller, too. I use that for finer cultivation. Uh, occasionally, my walkways will, will get a little bit Um, overgrown with weeds and I'll set the the rear-time tiller so it only cuts maybe an inch or two into the soil and do the walkways with that just to cultivate the weeds out of the walkways and uh, it does a nicer job of preparing a seed bed than a front-time tiller does so uh, I may on some of my beds if I'm seeding crops like carrots or beets or something else Uh, I'll pass it with the front tine tiller to break the soil up, and then I'll use the rear tine tiller to really uh, make the fine seed bed. I use a landscape rake for forming beds, I'm going to show you pictures of these. Uh, This is my list by the way, it's no no bigger than this, this is my list of gardening tools. Uh, A landscape rake uh, for forming beds, I use a grub hoe for forming walkways. I use something called a stirrup hoe uh, for most of my cultivations. I use what's called a worn hoe also for cultivations, and I use what's called a potato fork uh, as a harvest aid, a trash removal aid, and I should add a pitchfork on this list too. Um, uh, Before I move on to some pictures of these things, I do want to stress that good quality tools are essential. They're essential. And the reason that I say that is a, the difference in cost between a, uh, a, a cheap uh, use it once and throw it away hoe and a high quality hoe, hoe is about four times in, in the sense that I can buy a, a relatively cheap hoe that'll got, get the job done for maybe $10 and I can buy a really good quality hoe uh, that'll get the job done for $40 and my suggestion to you is to always buy the $40 hoe and the reason that I say that is that $40 hoe can last you years. I have one that is over 20 years old most of my hand tools have multiple years on them and uh, when you amortize the cost of that cheap hoe Uh, versus the expensive tool there's there's no question about which one is more cost-effective stay away from cheap tools and the the other disadvantage of that is if you have cheap tools and a job really needs to get done and it breaks on you guess what your jobs not going to get done and if that job happens to be something critical, like hoeing at a stage when the, when the, when the plants are, are easy to hoe versus having to wait until maybe five or six days later when you go into town and can get another hoe and you come back and the weeds have gone from here to here, uh, it just is not sensible to use poor quality tools. So everything that we use on our farm uh, is, is uh, maybe more expensive, but uh, a, a good quality tool. This is a landscape rake, Uh, you can find these in in a number of of places. A.M. Leonard Company is one that is a good source for a lot of these type of things. Uh, Their website is amleo.com, amleo.com. This landscape rake I use for forming beds and it's 36 inches wide and uh, it's got an aluminum head. It's not as heavy as it looks, but it does a beautiful job of leveling the beds out. Once I've tilled the beds, I can pull this landscape rake across the bed and have a really nice, fine level surface. Uh, They use these in golf courses to rake out the sand traps. You may have seen uh, seen them used in that way. Uh, the teeth are fairly wide and they 've got a little bit of a bump on the back side of them so that as you rake through the soil it doesn 't cut in uh, like a regular garden rake does and leave furrows it, it leaves a nice smooth surface. Those are great for uh, for making beds. Another tool that I use and this I use for uh, primarily making walkways if I till. Uh, a, a large area. Uh, I will use this to create a slight depression. You notice how my beds were a little higher than the walkways. Well this just, I just pulled these down the walkways and pulled dirt to each side, or soil to each side, uh, to create the bed. And this is called a grub hoe. And this is a heavy duty tool. And uh, the, by the way, the landscape rake, uh, Uh, Don't quote me on these prices because it's been a long time since I bought these things So they may have gone up in price, but the landscape rake's about a typically a $30 to $40 tool Uh, This is a $40 to $50 tool here that you're looking at Uh, You're not going to break one of these you see how it's uh, Designed here. Uh, You're not going to break the tip off of that are you and that's uh, uh, You know the only thing that is important is to be thoughtful and provide care for the wood handles. And I do that simply by using some, uh, uh, some linseed oil on them a couple of times a year and avoid leaving them out in, in the weather. I store them in a dark place, preferably, where, and I shouldn't say dark, but where they're not in direct sunlight. And uh, the ones that, that I, well, I have one of them that's probably 15 years old now that looks just like this one in the picture except some of the paint's gone. This is a grating hoe. This is also a useful tool. This is very similar to the grub hoe but it has a much longer uh, bite to it and it's, it's really quite interesting because you couldn't tell by looking at this but when you pull this it pulls a nice flat surface. The other hoe, depending on how you you, you You hold it, you can get ridges, or you can pull shallow and pull deep. With this hoe, you get a really nice level level cut with it. So again, I use this uh, for making walkways too. Nothing really extraordinary about it. The grub hoe is very good for removing deep, rooted weed problems like heavy grasses and things that have great big root systems and you're taking out large clumps of things they're not particularly good for doing fine cultivation in your garden beds it's too big and too heavy a duty for that it's uh, it's uh, you know like uh, using a hammer to try to push a pin in a in a in a bulletin board it's a little bit too much of a tool a couple of tools that are really uh, Probably the ones that I wear out the fastest uh, is this. It's called a stirrup hoe. And I told you that most of our crops after we transplant them uh, About seven to ten days later I cultivate and this is what I cultivate with and I'm cultivating uh, With this plants that are only you know an inch or or so tall Uh, weeds We've heard the, the the parables way too many times about how weeds being an image of sin and if we get them out when they're young (laughs) before it takes deep root it's a lot easier and uh, that is very true so when you cultivate you want to cultivate when the when the weeds are really small and these tools work really well for that because basically they just slice about the top quarter inch of the soil they work in both directions and it's this tool that I use typically to cultivate the crops between um, the the period of time of transplanting and when the crop has has fully formed a canopy over the bed so that it's shaded and I don't get any more weed germination. They come in different widths and sizes. I have two different widths on my farm so that uh, they're coordinated with the plant spacing that I use and uh, definitely a a must-have tool for for home gardeners. Now I have kind of stony soil, uh, so uh, I have to have good quality uh, stirrup hose also, one with a good solid blade because I'm sharpening those blades frequently. Um, but uh, th- this, uh, uh, this is a really useful tool and probably the simplest easiest way to keep your, 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 your weeds under control on your farm. Another tool that I use is called a warren hoe and this is a triangular shaped hoe that um, is very useful for doing a lot of different types of tasks where the stirrup hose might not uh, you know, complete the, the, the job fully. I use the warren hoe sometimes to cultivate if we have a real heavy downpour from a thunderstorm Uh, For example, before I I have a chance to cultivate, the the top layer of soil gets a little bit compacted and we can get a little crust layer on the top of the soil. And the stirrup hose can break that up a little bit, but this one actually works a lot better at at breaking up a crust on the soil surface, so the the worn hoe I use for that. And uh, I don't use it as frequently as the others, but it is something that I do use on a pretty regular basis. Uh, This next picture is what I call a potato fork. Uh, This is real handy for uh, pulling vines out of beds when I'm cleaning up after crops have been harvested and I'm removing the debris from the beds, things like you know vining plants particularly you can just reach out there and grab it i use it more like a rake than anything else but it's a small rake with big teeth that gives you a bite into being able to deal with these other large things i also use this when i'm harvesting potatoes i have a potato lifter for my tractor we grow a lot of potatoes we grow about six to eight thousand pounds of potatoes a year Uh, so I'm not digging those by hand I'm digging them with the tractor and I have a little shovel that goes on the back of the tractor that lifts the row and then I've got to separate the potatoes from the soil within that row and that's what this potato fork is I use it to 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 get the potatoes out of it. My newest best friend is my Hatfield transplanter, and um, I am thrilled to be able to recommend this to you. Um, a little bit of a story behind this. I have for many years had lower back problems. I did lots of stupid things when I was young. Lifted things I shouldn't have lifted and jumped off of things I shouldn't have jumped off of. And I have, I have substantial low back problems. And about three years ago uh, I was planting our fall crop of cauliflower in one of our fields and I had about 3,000 cauliflowers to transplant and at that time I was just bending over and doing it by hand. I had a little hand hoe that I used and I'd cut a furrow and put the plant in, move down and cut the furrow. So I spent most of the day bent over transplanting cauliflower and when I got to the end of the row I discovered I can't stand up and I'm not exaggerating I could not stand up and I was in such pain Um, I was about a quarter of a mile from the house. It took me almost 20 minutes to get back to the house, and when I got back to the house, I looked at my wife, and I said, Lenina, it's time for us to put a you-pick-berry operation in because I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore, and um, uh, it took me quite a while to recover from that. It was very painful, and I recalled as I was recovering from that about a friend of mine that had referred me to this tool and this tool is basically a tool that I can use to transplant plants standing up. I don't have to bend over anymore to do transplants and Johnny's Seeds was selling them last time I looked at their website I didn't see them on their website but uh, they come in three different sizes and I use two different plug sizes depending on the size of the the, the crop that I'm planting. I I have two of these and uh, basically they work by, uh, uh, they have an angled plate at the bottom of them. You shove it into the soil, when you open the handle it opens that plate and you drop your plant down the tube and then just pull it right out of the ground. It's very simple, easy and efficient to use. And the day that my back went out on me, I planted about 3,000 broccoli or cauliflower plants, and it took me from about eight in the morning till three thirty or four in the afternoon to do that. After I bought this tool, my daughter and I were able to do it together in about a little over an hour. It was it was remarkable. I mean, you just walk down the row and stick it in drop your transplant down and go. So it's definitely worthwhile, especially for those of us that might be beyond prime back flexibility years. Another one that I uh, like very much is this little device. It's, just, uh, it's Stand in Plant. Stand in Plant. And their website is, is thisword.com. Uh, they make a couple of transplanters. They make one similar to the Hatfield too, that is a one-handled, uh, one-handed tool. The Hatfield tool is a two-handed tool. Uh, but this particular one I use for transplanting onions. Again, I was not able to transplant onions because it requires so much bending over. And uh, garlic too, by the way, requires a lot of bending over to set the cloves in the ground. And I was uh, uh, at a uh, small farm conference in West Virginia, and the vendor for this, the manufacturer for it was there and was demonstrating it to me. And I thought he sells it as a seed planter also for large seeded things like you know, squash, pumpkins, corn, that kind of thing. Uh, it's about an inch and a quarter in diameter. Uh, but I was looking at it thinking I can drop my onion seedlings down that and that's what I do now so I use this for planting onions um, it's a little bit small for for large cloves of garlic but you could use it for planting garlic too and that has really um, been a savior for me because I do a lot of onions uh, we grow um, anywhere from uh, from about 1500 to 2000 uh, garlic plants per year and I grow about 4,000 onions Uh, that those are two of the crops that we do real well with in our farmers market so I needed a way to 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 make that happen without bending over and these two things I found to be very helpful. I want to suggest to you when you're buying supplies whether it's tools or seed or soil mix or frost cloth uh, soil amendments tools anything that you're buying for your gardens, don't go to the local garden center and buy it. Um, Find an online wholesaler that sells to commercial growers to buy any of these items. And the reason that I say that is that because we do this full time. And we need tools that are going to hold up. We need seeds that are going to be viable. We need a soil mix that is good and consistent. And we use a lot of this stuff so you'll get better prices. Even if you're just a homeowner. There's no reason that you can't buy from many wholesale accounts even as a homeowner. or, Or from wholesale only supply houses so uh, we have a website Uh, if you didn't write it down at the beginning of the class it's bereagardens.org and i have a a page on that website where i list some of these wholesale suppliers that i use but definitely take advantage of the quality difference that you'll get from buying from a commercial supplier Um, seed quality and the seed packets that you find at the local garden center and the local Uh, hardware store, the local Walmart, that is lousy seed, folks. It it really is poor quality, and that's a topic for another day. Uh, On Friday, I'll be doing a a segment uh, on on seed saving. Uh, But even if you have to buy more seed than you'll ever use, it's still such an insignificant investment in the overall cost of your garden that it's better to buy an ounce even if you only need a quarter of an ounce and then share the rest of the seed or save it for a period of time and use it later uh, by buying from a from a commercial supplier. It's definitely, definitely worth doing. Mulching is something that we do also uh, where we can't, where it's not practical to put the plants close enough together uh, to uh, uh, to just cultivate once and have the plant canopy cover the area. I do use mulches. I do not use plastic mulch. Ever. Under any circumstance. And the reason that I don't is because plastic mulch does not breathe. And plastic mulch does n- will actually trap water. Plastic mulch was developed in Israel for use with drip irrigation on a very sandy desert soil. In moist climates, and by moist climates, I mean here in in our country, anything east of the Rockies, a plastic mulch is an inappropriate method to use in agriculture. In part, many of the plastic mulches can leach chemicals into the ground. Most of them are not organically certified. Number two, because of the microenvironment that they create, by being basically uh, airproof and and waterproof, you accumulate very high levels of moisture under that plastic that can lead to long-term disease problems in your crops. It is not a good method for mulching. Um, what you see here in this picture is a woven polyester fiber that allows both air and water to move through it. This is called landscape fabric. And I do use this. It's far more uh, environmentally sound than using plastic too because most of the mulch plastics that are made are only a a mill or so thick. You can only use them one time and then you throw it away. This particular... Uh, landscape fabric that you see here, I've been using for 10 years. So I, you know, I, I, I use it for the season that I need it. I roll it up, I put it out the next year, and uh, it's it's very heavy and can be reused. Obviously, more expensive than the, than the plastic, but again, when I evaluate its use over time, it's far more cost effective. So uh, that's uh, that, that, that's something that you can make use of. I also use hay. We have, as I said, a 120 acre farm. Uh, we have horses, and we have about uh, 10 acres of our uh, farm that is not in pasture or forest. We essentially use it as a hay field, and we, we cut the hay off of it every year, both for our horses and some of it for me to use as mulch. This is garlic. Uh, that is about four inches of hay mulch. Uh, on it to suppress and control weeds too. Uh, very useful material. I use the hay that we harvest the first cutting of the season, not the second cutting. Uh, our first cutting comes off of our fields usually around the 1st of June and uh, by getting the first cutting hay uh, I avoid having uh, a lot of viable seed in that hay so that I don't seed a problem with my mulch. If you use Uh, hay that's cut later in the year. Uh, Oftentimes there'll be a lot of mature seed in the hay and you're not just uh, preventing weeds at the immediate point, but you're sowing weeds for the next crop cycle. That doesn't make sense either. Another form of mulch that I make use of since we live in West Virginia is uh, hardwood mulch. This is basically Uh, stuff that came from Asplen Tree Service after they cleared power lines in our area. Uh, Those guys and I have gotten to know each other really well over the 10 years that I've been there. We probably uh, um, had them donate to us uh, 50 or more truckloads of this stuff. And um, I don't use it raw. I compost it for a minimum of five years before I use it for mulch. Uh, there are some real problems with using uh, wood chips in your garden. I'm not an advocate of that at all. I am an advocate of using composted uh, wood products as a mulch, not as a growing media. And uh, this does two things for us. It it really does a good job of controlling weeds. Uh, When it's about five to seven years old uh, it's mostly broken down. Uh, Some of the Wood, the larger wood pieces are still apparent in it but it's mostly just a black fine uh, uh, compost. I put about two inches of this on uh, the, the ground for uh, controlling weed pressure during the crop cycle in this case the center bed here is um, uh, eggplant and we have peppers on the two side rows and by the time those crops are harvested and I'm ready for the next crop cycle Uh, I just till this into the ground to add organic matter to the ground. Now, I've got to be a little bit careful with my crop rotations because I don't want to do this with every crop cycle. I don't do this any more frequently than once a year as far as using the hardwood mulch on on the ground for weed suppression. I don't want to incorporate any more than uh, about an inch or two Uh, per year into the ground to add organic matter. Otherwise, you start to increase the organic matter content too much and diminish the mineral content of the soil and that has some disadvantages. Another product that we make use of that's uh, kind of handy is uh, a a mulch paper, a paper mulch. Um, My neighbor and a good friend of mine uses this extensively in his uh, farming operation. I use it on occasion where it's appropriate, but this is a biodegradable paper that is designed specifically as a mulch paper. I specify that because using newsprint, using cardboard, using other forms of paper is not a good idea. It's not a good idea because dioxin is produced in the manufacture of paper and dioxin is an extremely potent toxin and you don't want that potent toxin going into your food so this particular product is designed specifically as a mulch for growing crops it contains no dioxin and it's also manufactured in a way that it will last uh, for the duration of your crop but then is fully biodegradable and you can just till it into the ground afterwards so, as I said, I don't use this a lot, but in some instances, there are uh, occasions where I've, uh, I've made use of this paper product, too, and I want to make you aware of it. For a home gardener, it could be very useful. Um, if you go to their, uh, if you want to buy this directly from, Uh, the weed guard plus website you'd be best off it comes in three-foot widths and four-foot widths and 100-foot rolls and 500-foot rolls and it's more expensive than plastic mulch but it's certainly a much superior product in terms of its safety and utility okay well we're winding down to the last few minutes here and I just want to uh, Um, say we'll take we'll take a few questions here but most importantly I want to conclude by saying that when we approach our gardens we want to keep a concept of efficiency in our minds all the time find ways to solve your own problems and find ways that make sense so that you can do what you do and value your time Realize that your time has value and if you find yourself wasting time or spending too much time in one Aspect of the garden as opposed to another then you know think of novel ways to solve some of those problems What I've tried to share with you here today are basically some of the solutions that I have found uh, That I think would apply well to a home garden situation But uh, you know your, your paradigm your, your circumstance your situations are all going to be different and just uh, have an awareness to, to keep efficiencies in mind. All right, I'm going to take a couple of questions now. I'll have to repeat your question for the recording and then I'll answer the question and we'll move on. So please be patient with me. You, you were first, yes. Elliot Coleman, you want to know about movable high tunnels. Elliot Coleman advocates a process of moving high tunnels so that you leach the soil and also have less disease inside. Um, That can be site-specific. In areas where you have high wind, Elliot Coleman's on the coast of Maine, uh, where he doesn't get gust front thunderstorms with 80 mile an hour blasts that come at you at any given time during the summer months. Uh, I do not advocate that. Um, If you manage a greenhouse properly, you will not have increased Uh, salt problems in the soil you will not have increased disease problems on the plants Uh, but that's a process that works for him but it's not a one-size-fits-all solution by any means Uh, let's see yes sir over here very good question I touched on plant spacing and how do we determine how much space between our plants too much but but uh, or or, or just enough but not too much Uh, okay uh, no, I, I'm sorry to be vague by that. Some of that's going to depend on again your experimental knowledge with how the particular crops grow in your area. The, the, the concept is predicated on the fact that when the plant is, is about halfway mature that there should be some overlap of the leaves. When it's fully mature the plant is uh, is overlapped with leaves but not crowded. And for me, uh, for my brassica crops, for example, I find that in the fall, I need a little more space than I do in the spring, actually, in our climate. So I space mine at, at 18 inches in the fall, 18 inch square for things like broccoli and cauliflower. In the fall, I can go to, to, to 22 or 24 inches because with slower growth, the plants get a little bit larger. They're in the ground for a longer period of time before they're, they're fully mature. And the idea here is you want them to shade, but you don't want them crowded. If you crowd them too much, they'll get, you, you'll get competition and also develop more disease problems from lack of air movement. Yes, ma'am. If you're trying to organic garden, what do you do for Mexican bean beetle larva? Um, I'm, this, this isn't a pest control class and there's a lot that could be talked about here. Um, but um, Bt is a, is, is a common treatment for that that's certified for organic bacillus so thuringiensis. At what stage of growth do you apply the paper? You actually apply that before planting, punch holes in it, and then plant through the paper. Yes, sir. Do I incorporate my plant residue directly into the beds? Uh, on occasion, yes, I do. With things that come out of the greenhouses that are very bulky, like those large broccoli and cauliflower plants I actually remove the plants and compost them in a different location and many of the field crops I will just till them in Now, yes sir I use a file usually Uh, for that I have a small bench grinder and I have a surface grinder too but uh, that's usually a file that I use to sharpen my tools with yes ma'am A good question came up uh, during our break here about whether I run my rows or my hoop houses north, south, and east, west. Um, The concept that you want to pay attention to, two concepts to pay attention to when uh, orienting your rows or orienting your greenhouses is what is the prevailing breeze and will one crop shade another crop? if it's on the north side. We're in the northern hemisphere here so if I grow a real tall crop of corn on an east-west uh, line and plant a short stature crop on the north side of that, that short stature crop is going to be in the shade all the time. The reality is when it comes to greenhouses the prevailing breeze is more important to me than the north-south-east-west. It doesn't matter. Uh, I orient mine so that I take the greatest advantage of the prevailing breeze because in the, and that's for cooling in the summer so that I get air movement through the tunnels now the one exception to, um, to that is if you have multiple hoop houses and you're putting them side by side if you have multiple hoop houses that are oriented east-west and you have them too close together, during the winter months the, the southernmost house is, is going to always shade part of the northernmost house. So if you have them north and south and as the sun goes over, each, all the areas get some sunlight. But if you orient them east and west and leave enough space between them so that the, the southern house doesn't shade the northern house, it makes no difference. You asked me what wholesale companies I use again, I said go to my website, I have a list of them on, on my website, bereagardens.org, B-E-R-E-A-G-A-R-D-E-N-S dot O-R-G. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a couple methods, one of the most uh, effective methods for keeping deer out of the high tunnels is very high velocity lead pellets. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) No, I I shouldn't joke about that. Fortunately, where we are, I haven't had a problem going into the high tunnels. Uh, When I was in Virginia for a period of time, I built a number of high tunnels at at the the college that I was at over there. And we actually had deer that would jump right through the end of the high tunnels. If that's an issue, you can put up some wire fence or fencing material or something to to prevent that. Yes, ma'am. Do I plant by the moon? No, I do not. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad you asked that question. I'm going to give you a, a, a two-part answer to that question. Uh, she asked if I plant by the, the signs of the moon. And in the area, pardon me? By the fullness. By the fullness. That's, that's what moon signs are all about, is the phase, the moon phase. Okay. Um, no, I do not. And I don't for two reasons. One is that it has never... Uh, after some scrutiny by the University of California at Davis, it has never been proven to be scientifically valid that that has any influence on crop growth. The second reason that I avoid it, and this is my personal choice and decision, is that I want to avoid any sign or semblance of spiritualism in in agriculture. Now to some people that might be, some people it might not be. I'm not saying that it's spiritualistic. What I'm saying is my conscience tells me that the best time to plant a crop is when the conditions for planting the crop are there. That means soil moisture, weather, day length, temperature, other indications other than the phase of the moon and because I'm growing crops and talking about efficiencies here I'm not going to wait around and leave my ground empty if I've got good conditions for planting in fact an extreme case of, of why I feel this way is that a few years ago many of the, the local mountain folk where we are uh, plant by, uh, by lunar signs, by the signs of the moon, the phase of the moon and they, uh, all of them plant potatoes and one year, when the phase of the moon was right, we had heavy downpours. Nobody could get their potatoes planted. Dried up after that, but they weren't going to plant their potatoes till the moon was right, so they were going to wait. This was in March. They were going to wait until April uh, when the moon phase was right. And guess what happened in April? It downpoured again. They never got plat- potatoes planted that year. So, you know, we have to be realistic about this. And I want to be very uh, cautious. Uh, particularly in our times today of avoiding any aspect of spiritualism in my approach to agriculture too and the reason that I say this is that there are so many spiritualistic influences agriculture today the winds of doctrine are just ridiculous and I want to um, have discernment that I am working in cooperation with the Lord in in the ministry that we have in agriculture, and I know that he winks at ignorance, but because I'm a professional, I don't have a lot of ignorance. So if there's something that I question in any way, shape, or form that can kind of test the corners of that, my choice is to avoid all appearance of evil. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.